along with that desire and that drive to perform and to succeed, I have to have an equal balance of curiosity and humility and desire to learn and to wonder how does the world work and what's motivating me right now? And are they the kind of motivations that I want to have motivating me? And, you know, how can I find joy in what I'm doing? And how do I want to go to work every day? Who do I want to be? These types of questions unlock the kinds of discoveries that even as an individual are what some would consider to be the most important questions and internal conversations to have. But it all starts, in my opinion, Dan, with the kind of authentic curiosity that truly comes from a place of humility, where we deeply are interested, not just in asking the best question, but in even listening to what emerges within ourselves. That's John Berghoff, a true legend, both in and out of the Cutco business. As a Cutco sales rep, John revolutionized the opportunity for everyone in the company. He asked the questions that no one else was asking, and he set new standards and achieved goals that had never before been approached by anyone else. Now, as a respected business leader with an international following, John is teaching leaders how to grow their skills and how to leverage their new talents to unite people around a shared purpose, increase collaboration and innovation on their teams, and embrace revolutionary challenges and opportunities. John believes that we live in a world that our questions create. In this conversation, he shares a variety of questions you can use to unlock possibility for yourself and for those you lead. John Berghoff is truly changing lives. His insights can help you grow your influence to a massive scale. I'm very proud to share with you the important work and compelling ideas of a true legend, John Berghoff. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. All right. Hello, everyone. My guest today is near and dear to my heart. Is Mr. John Berghoff, and uh, any of you within the Cutco sphere know that uh, John is probably my most famous in the Cutco world mentee that I got to work with in my very own Cutco office. He became the youngest ever member of the Cutco Vector Marketing Hall of Fame as a sales rep. And while he was in college, he really revolutionized the personal sales opportunity uh, in vector marketing. He was the number one sales rep in the company for a year while he was uh, in college, beat all of the 
Cutco sales professionals and people who are out of school selling Cutco full-time. Nowadays, John coaches executives and entrepreneurs from around the United States and, and really around the world at this point. Uh, he is the founder and CEO of the Flourishing Leadership Institute, which is bringing a, a new model for teaching leadership, teaching how to connect others, connect people, and how to bring out the collective genius in groups or organizations or companies. So, John, I really appreciate you being here today. You're an amazing change maker in the world, and I know you're super busy and uh, grateful for a little bit of your time today. Thanks. Hey, Dan. It's good to be here, man. It's always fun. It's always fun. This conversation began 20 years ago, almost to the month, if you think about it. I know. I know. That is, I was just thinking about correct. That. It was June of 1999, and a 17-year-old John Berghoff walked into my Cutco office in San Jose, California. And uh, here we are, 20 years later, talking about life, talking about leadership talking about success. So cool. I make, you know, it makes me happy that 20 years later, we're here talking about this. I think that's something to cherish, you know? It sure is. It sure is. John, I want to spend a lot of our time today talking about what you're doing now because uh, it's so compelling and uh, you're making such a difference in the world. But of course, we need to at least uh, get into a little bit of your Cutco story. So tell us whatever you want to tell us about your Cutco story, the early days and some of your experiences. <laughs> Oh man, there's it's uh, there's so much to it. It's such a big part of my life. I think. Well, you know, the funny thing is, you're the only person in the world who should take the liberty to interrupt me because you might be able to tell it with more clarity than I can. Because I was a 17 year old trying to figure out what who I was, and I'll jump played, in. I'll jump in once yeah, in a while. <laughs> you played such a key role. Um, well, I think I would just start there and say that uh, one of the many things that was beautiful about my experience with Cutco, which by the way, I, when I think of my experience with Cutco, I don't think of it as an experience that ended when I was done selling knives and I moved on to other things in my career. It's, it was really a gift that has stayed with me more than any other experience I've ever had. And the further along I go and the more things I see and people I meet, the more clearly I'm able to realize how significant that Cutco experience was. I always knew it was significant, but it just becomes more clear every day. And I think one thing, and we can go wherever you want, but one thing that stands out for me when I think about it is I found Cutco at this interesting time in my life personally where I wasn't necessarily thriving in my life when I stumbled into Cutco. I wasn't thriving uh, socially. I wasn't thriving mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and all the ways that someone could be thriving or not. I was. It was actually at a time where I was really struggling. And what was what only became clear to me, I think even in the past few years, is that Cutco, for many reasons, the culture, the product, the training, the people, it really served as like a way out for me, a way out of a, mm. a, a path that I sometimes I don't even want to think where I would have ended up if I hadn't found Cutco. And it was, I think, of, of the many beautiful things about the culture, the fact that it was such an inviting culture. It was a place where I could be myself, whoever I was, and still fit in. And 20 years later, as that's a question every human being asks every time they walk into a room of any group of people. Can I be myself and fit in? And I realized that was one of the reasons why I thrived there. And, and so many young people do is it's a place where whoever you are, you can find a place and the rest was history. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, with such a big organization with so many different types of people that there's, there's always someone you can identify with. 
And what I also like, John, is that results really speak in Cutco. And when somebody comes in and does well, people naturally look up to that and they, and they want to aspire to that. And I, I agree with you that I was kind of a misfit before I came here. I wasn't very, very effective socially wasn't a very good communicator. And in fact, when I saw what the job was about, my first thought was, oh, I can't do that. And then I was quickly able to transform that in my brain to, well, I need to do that. And, you know, just because I worked pretty hard when I was brand new, I had some okay results. My averages weren't very good, but I had some okay results and garnered a little bit of respect and a little bit of confidence because of that. And that's certainly something that I saw with you. You know, I can remember you had a pretty decent start. But then when we got to our second big sales contest of that summer, which is called push period for summer conference two, you asked me, you know, what's the record and the record in company history for this two week sales contest at the time was 23,100 and something. And, uh, and you said, well, I want to go for it. That two weeks, I think was a transformational time. Do you recall that experience? I do. I recall it vividly. And, um, a couple of things you just said that, bring me back. One of them is I, I remember you were my manager and I remember hearing you talk about this idea that in life, the outcomes or the rewards that we get to experience are often in proportion to how well we develop ourselves as people, right? And the, you know, the exact quote was probably along the lines of our income will seldom exceed our levels of personal development. And I just remember, I remember so clearly sitting there as a brand new rep. And I, I remember being afraid nobody would buy anything from me when I was in training. And there were certainly people that didn't buy and people that did. But I remember thinking to myself, what if this guy, Dan, what if he's right? Like, what if it's true that if I actually apply myself and I choose to learn that that's how the world works. And I, I remember thinking, as you said a moment ago, there was something about this job as weird as I thought it was and as uncomfortable as I was with the whole concept of selling knives. I was more attracted to this idea that maybe there's a deep truth, that maybe this is really how life works, that it doesn't respond to if I want something or if I need something, but have I really earned it? Do I really deserve it? So when you, when you said that a second ago, it reminded me of one of the big attractors is this just seems so much closer to the reality of how I think the world really works is mm. I get out of it what I put into it. You motivated me, Dan, in a big way at a, an age in my life where I wasn't super inspired by, well, I'll just call it traditional education for whatever reason. I wasn't inspired in when I went to school every day. But when I saw that I could learn certain life skills, that I could actually see the benefit of those skills within like hours of learning it, because I could go apply something trying to introduce the product to a customer in a new way. That got me super pumped. And you kind of invigorated in me this passion for learning. And I know that was a cultural thing with Vector, still is today. Uh, but that was a big deal for me. That's awesome, John. What are some other moments that stand out as transformational from your your Cutco experience? You know, you mentioned that that first push period. I don't know if you remember this, but one of our team meetings, uh, actually, it was at the first summer conference. I'm sitting in the front left row in Sacramento, California. And you can't forget it because the air conditioning was broken. And there are a thousand young people sitting in this summer conference one. I had only been working for two weeks. And it, like I had had an average start. And it was the closing message of is that conference. This the famous conference when Mark Lovis was uh, was speaking. 
That's right. Yeah. That's what I was going to share is, uh, it was a pivotal moment for me because Mark's closing the conference with this message called flip the switch. And he talked about how, when the why is strong enough, the how will reveal itself. And as soon as he was done talking, I walked right up to Ed Reed and I said to Ed Reed, I said, Ed, I'm going to win the next push period. And what I was doing is I was just committing myself because I thought if I can just invent a bunch of reasons to want to follow through on my commitments, maybe that's a good idea. And, and then the next week at one of our team meetings, you or one of our assistant managers, I think, talked again about the power of purpose and how important it was for us to really consider why is it that we're doing what we're doing? And which is an idea that lives, that is so alive in my work today. Uh, we just finished a huge research project studying across a thousand employees in the U.S. workforce. Like, what is it that leads to certain types of successes in organizations? And there at the top of the list is a transcendent purpose. And we can talk about what that is and how people create it in teams and cultures today. But you were doing it 20 years ago. And I remember you had me take a piece of paper and you, somebody said, fill the piece of paper with as many reasons as possible why it is that that goal that's written on the other side is important to you. And that piece of paper I kept with me for that push period. And I would turn it over and I'd look at it. And I had 50 different reasons why I wanted to succeed. And that was such a pivotal lesson early in my life and the importance of flexing the muscle to keep asking, why do I want this? So that was a big learning early on when I think about that push period too. You know, you mentioned the uh, message that must have been at a team meeting, just talking about purpose. And I know that in a lot of businesses, uh, when people get together, uh, the focus is all about business and how do we drive sales and how do we increase our results and what are our opportunities. And there's not a lot of focus on personal development and on things that are just not necessarily directly related to the business, but that in the long run, grow people and build the business. How important do you feel it was that you know you were around an environment that was giving you that weekly or even more than weekly personal growth side of things? Yeah. Well, aside from the fact that it's a world-class product, because we can't deny that you know, it's a privilege to get to sell something that's the best in the world. But you put that aside for a second. I don't know if there's any other reason why I would have been successful in that environment. You know, the, the fact that it was an environment where it was about developing people first and selling knives second, that was everything. That was an attractor for me. It was so significant. And I think 20 years later, when I look back on that, I think there's a deep human need that we all have to grow. And to evolve. I think it, some people would call it a spiritual need. Some people would call it a, a principle in nature. Uh, some would argue there's a science behind this. I don't know what's necessarily underneath it or behind it. But I think all of us can relate to this idea that we want to grow, right? I mean, when you look outside in nature, things want to grow. And so having that need met in this incredible place, it was everything. It was everything. Yeah. Wow. So I remember then that push period that first summer and uh, the record was 23,000. You set out to break that record. I can remember nightly at the office, you and I being the last people to leave and role-playing the moment that the, the numbers are revealed. It's called the count-up, right? Role-playing the count-up and you played John Berghoff and I played the MC, the crowd and your competitors as we were role playing. So you could feel that moment every day of what it was going to be like. And then you got there, you did, you sold 26,000 in those two weeks, you broke the record. And then of course the next year 
you nearly tripled that record mm-hmm. in the same contest. And then, of course, became one of the most illustrious salespeople we've ever seen. So often I get asked the question, what was it about John Berghoff? And I'd like to turn that question around onto you. You know, as you broke sales records and became truly one of the greatest achievers the Cutco Vector Sphere has ever seen, what was it that helped you to accomplish all those goals? You know, the answer could be tied up in that little story you shared about us role-playing late at night. It could be that I was weird enough of a guy that I was willing to role-play the future in advance, right? (laughs) Because as you described it, it's exactly as we did it. And um, I think it was a combination of things. And I want to come back to that idea of, of standing in the future, in the present moment, and how important that is. But a part of it, Dan, is I said this earlier, that when I found Vector, I wasn't thriving in my life. And a lot of what motivated me was I thought, man, I've been given such a gift of an opportunity here to finally get to be who I want to be, to discover what my strengths are. And in many ways, my motivation came from the other side of a lot of pain. Because as a young person, I had a, I had a lot of painful experiences. And I had a mentor recently who helped me to realize that so much of what we eventually do in our lives and in our career is often to heal some part of our soul. It's to create wholeness. And um, I think I was lucky that Vector gave me an opportunity to right away heal a lot of pain that I had, just not enjoying my life. I thought, this is such a gift. It was so easy for me to see what a gift it was to have that opportunity because of how much struggle I was facing at that very same time in my life. But then I think it was, um, I think it was being around people. And I think so much of what allowed me the fortune that I had with Cutco was just the quality of the people around me. I mean, here you and I are talking and I've had people ask me, they say, how lucky were you to have Dan in your life? And not to discredit you, Dan, but you're, you would understand this more than anybody. I often will tell people, I'll say, well, if you really knew how lucky I am, you'd know that I've had 10, 20, 30 Dans in my life. Many of them I met in the Cutco organization. So I think it was a big lesson for me that uh, I stumbled into. I wasn't so smart to surround myself with these great people. It was just a gift of the culture. But it's definitely a lesson I try and live with today, which is to just to really protect who do I allow into my space and who do I give my time and energy to and to recognize that as I evolve and I change, I might want to think about changing and evolving who I want to be around and the environments I want to be around. And and even questioning the relationships that I often think are the last ones I would question and realizing it doesn't mean that I don't love this person or that we don't respect each other just as human beings. It just means I got to really be careful because my time on this earth is short and who I allow to be a true influence. You know, we all become whoever we hang out with, right? We look around at who we spend time with. We eventually just become like all those people. So I know I worked hard. I know I was passionate about learning. And I was very clear about who I wanted to be learning from. And you may remember this, that when I was a young rep, you know, for some reason, it seemed so simple to me. I thought, well, I just have to find who's mastered the process. And then I got to find what are they doing, right? And then model what they're doing. Find the master and then model the master and then master the models that they're doing, right? So I would take the newsletters And I'd get on the phone. Back then, I don't think there was texting or Facebook or email. And I would just call the top 10 reps every week. And I was surprised at first how giving they were, how willing they were to just share. And I thought, I'm just going to keep talking to these people until I become one of them or they stop taking my phone calls. One of the two (laughs) will happen. 
so I think that was so key was just being super conscientious of who am I around and, and who do I want to be more like in my life and how do I get near those people? Yeah, that was a big part of it. Yeah, you know, it's our, our friend John Vroman shares this in, uh, in the Front Row Factor, his, his book about being really deliberate about the environments that we put ourselves into and um, how those shape us, that uh, we, we gradually adopt the philosophies, the beliefs, the habits of the people that we're around a lot. So, and it, it was cool to see you seeking out other great people and, and asking questions. When I think about you and people ask me about you, one of the words that I would use is the word willing. You were willing to do what it would take, whether that was the learning side mm-hmm. um, or the work side, mm-hmm. right? You were willing to do what it would take for you to be able to be successful. And you had a hunger about you at a young age that uh, was not something I, I saw all the time uh, in young people. Um, so if we fast forward a little while, you end up at Vitamix and you become the director of sales at Vitamix. And um, I understand that over about a four-year period, you essentially quadrupled their sales force, quadrupled their revenue. Uh, what were some of the keys that allowed you to grow that business at that level? Yeah. Well, the Vitamix journey is also one that hasn't ended, even though I'm not technically with the company. I was actually just with Jody Berg, the CEO, and her cousin, Lori Connors, two weeks ago. Uh, they came to visit our twice annual training that we run. And uh, they're still dear friends today. They, by the way, are the great granddaughters of the founder of Vitamix. It's a fourth generation family owned company. Huh. And it's funny. It's funny because there's a lot of parallels to Vitamix. They're manufactured here in Cleveland, three hours away from Olean, New York, where Cutco is made. You all of a sudden realize how it's like my whole yeah. life is spent in the kitchen. It's and like Cutco's really- family owned also. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and so Vitamix, it's similarly, uh, I take zero credit for having a world-class product and also an incredible culture. And um, that was an experience where where I, I had a chance, they were a, a client of mine for a couple of years. <clears throat> so I was working as a coach and consultant. And after a few years working with them, I jumped on board and, uh, it, and it was an experience where I learned so much about humility. And I learned by default by mentors that I had it about my fifth and sixth Dan Cassetta in my life. I met at Vitamix and, um, and I learned from these mentors how important it was to get really clear on my strengths. And then everywhere other than that, can I be curious and humble and invite the strengths of others? And, um, and so I was fortunate that I came across those lessons. And I realized really quickly that in that situation, being a leader was not about having the answers. Uh, being a leader was about figuring out what are the right questions to bring to as many people as possible and to figure out how to engage and include as many intelligent minds as I could in the most important conversations. Uh, because we were, we were at a time where we were facing a lot of change, which brings a lot of complexity and uncertainty. It could be exciting when you're growing, but it's still very challenging. And so the big lesson for me there, amongst many others, was just how important it was to truly be curious, to truly be humble, and figure out how to tap into the wisdom of, of so many others around me. 
That's really interesting, John, because in in Cutco, we give people a chance to be leaders at a very young age. You know, I ran a branch office. I was 19 years old um, when I ran my first branch. That's not unusual here these days in our company uh, to have people at 19 and 20 years old running a sales office. And I think I ran a branch. It was a beautiful experience. Yeah. Morgan Hill, right? Morgan Hill. The Morgan Hill mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I think that for young leaders, they feel like they've got to have all the answers and they've got to be like this strong force of direction. But this idea of involvement, of engagement uh, of a team, of an organization, of a group uh, brings out so many more answers and so many more ideas so much more quickly. And people buy in a whole lot more uh, when they're around a leader that takes that approach. So it was cool that, uh, yeah, it, you it, applied it, that. You, you modeled that for me, by the way. I mean, when, when I was a young rep, brand new, um, clearly there were certain competencies I had to learn from you and other managers and you needed to teach me. But I think what a lot of people might be surprised at, Dan, is how quickly you deferred the need to be my teacher. And it, and it wasn't because you didn't have more to offer but you quickly pointed me towards so many other teachers. You brought in outside teachers. When I was 17, you introduced me to Pete Drew Bay, and I was going through, you know, $1,000 sales seminars and hiring my own coaches. And I mean, anybody in your shoes could have had the thought, well, gosh, what does it take away from me, Dan, that John is hiring someone else? You were the one encouraging that. Because I think part of what you knew was, if you could actually inspire people to want to learn and to learn from anybody and everybody, that's expanding the capacity of the whole team. There's only so much of you that you could have given anyways. So you modeled that even in a place where it would have been easy for people to not know that you were modeling that. Yeah. I remember that uh, an old quote attributed to Ben Franklin was, was something like empty the coins of your purse into your mind and then your mind will fill your purse with gold. Uh-huh. And, uh, that, that notion of, uh, uh, you know, investing in ourselves and uh, finding teachers and gaining knowledge is certainly what what has helped a lot of us to succeed. Um, so, I think it's pretty interesting that you. What I've heard is that you got into the MBA program at Case Western uh, there in Cleveland, which is a prestigious MBA program. Uh, you got into that program without having your undergrad degree. How did that happen? <laughs> As I like to say, it's all selling knives. <laughs> um, you know, it was uh, a convergence of events. I my my very first week on the job at Vitamix, um, we I was called into a meeting that I knew very little about. And when you're new on a job, you're really excited to get called into meetings. And a few weeks later, you're you're figuring how do I get out of all these meetings? And so I was really excited about this first meeting. And we had brought in uh, this professor by the name of Dr. David Cooperwriter. And I didn't know who David was. And within about an hour of a two-day engagement, uh, over like a six-month engagement, within the first hour, I was fascinated by this methodology that he was uh, bringing into our organization. It had actually been brought in before, so they're bringing it back in to invite the entire company to create a shared set of guiding principles. Because at the time, they were about 90 years old. And how do we learn from our past before we move into this exciting new future? An important question for any organization to 
to leverage the strengths and the knowledge and the skills from the past as they create new, innovative, different, exciting futures. So that's what David was there to lead us through creating those answers on our own. And I was so captivated by his methodology, which is called appreciative inquiry. And uh, I was so captivated. I thought, how do I learn more from this guy? And I saw quickly that he was the uh, the professor of sustainability, sustainable entrepreneurship, I think at the time was his title at the Weatherhead School of Management. So I did a little research and I thought, okay, for about $110,000, I can get really close to David Cooperwriter. <laughs> and uh, so I made that leap to go apply to go through their executive M- MBA program, which specialized in leading large scale change. That was a specialization. And um, so when I applied, they, they gave me an interview. And they were willing to interview me, I think, because I was working at an organization, Vitamix, and I was responsible for really large-scale change. So I give a lot of credit to Case Western Reserve University, the Weatherhead School of Management, for being willing to overlook that I didn't ever have an, I don't have an undergraduate degree, but they were able to see that the real-life experience that I was living right then and there would bring value into the classroom because the way they uh, experiential learning. Many actually credit case. A lot of what is uh, now taught today in the area of experiential learning was born at case 30, 40 years ago. And, and so a big part of how they facilitate learning is whoever's in the class, they're teaching each other. And so I think they saw what I was doing and they were willing to factor that in. They did make me go take the GMAT to prove that I could add a couple numbers, I guess, and pass a test. But that's the long story of how I got into that program. And it was uh, it was one of the best investments I've ever made, which is really an interesting closing of a loop considering 15 minutes ago, I told you that I really struggled with traditional education. Uh, but it's a good example of why it's important to not make generalized comments that all of education is broken. Uh, because no, I think many of us might struggle in certain environments, but in other environments thrive. And that's what happened for me. So you you got to get close to David Cooper Ryder during this time. And tell us a little bit about him and how that relationship has evolved into what you're doing now. Yeah. So, you know, that, that very first day and those first hours of learning from him, um, I'll, I'll never forget. I sent a text to our mutual friend, and this was back. This is almost ten years ago to the day. I sent a text to John Rulin. I said, "John, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, David Cooperwriter, or this thing called appreciative inquiry, but I have a feeling this is going to be a big play, a big role in my life." And it did. What ended up happening was over the next four years, uh, getting to learn more from David and his colleague, uh, Professor Ron Fry, who was there by David's side going back 35 years, um, we brought this methodology into how we tackled large-scale complex opportunities and challenges at Vitamix. And we had such a a positive experience um, that I ended up leaving Vitamix. And Jody, the CEO, still today, she and I were just talking about this at our recent Leap Week, that I was so fortunate that they were a company that truly believed in allowing people to pursue their passion and their purpose and to follow their strengths. And when I left Dan, they threw a party, not because they wanted me to leave, but because they honored me pursuing my strengths. And uh, it just says a lot about the company. Um, But what ended up happening is I left to figure out how to bring to the world what I had benefited from as a student of David's and someone who got to apply it in a real world environment at Vitamix. And it took me a couple of years to figure out what that was going to look like. 
But we stayed in close collaboration with David, uh, applying his methodology to large group planning and large group problem solving, where we're testing and experimenting uh, in partnership with him with hundreds of people in a room at a time, solving a problem, shaping their future. And eventually a light bulb went off. We all saw the possibility that what is now today the Flourishing Leadership Institute, that we could really be a leader because I didn't want to do anything if it wasn't the absolute best combination of my personal strengths and my possible ways of making an impact in the world, which is a fancy way of saying whatever we were going to do, we wanted to be able to, to be uh, the leader in the world at whatever we did. That was just kind of a focusing question that we got from studying some of the good to great ways of thinking and questions to ask. And, um, and so there was a light bulb that went off and we said, we're going to specialize in this method. And so for about a year, we just went crazy applying this everywhere we could. We got invited into really exciting opportunities and great companies. And then we started teaching facilitators and leaders how to do what we're doing. And that was an experiment that only started two years ago. And it's now 220 people from 19 countries have flown to Cleveland to spend a week with us uh, to now bring this method into their organization. So that's the long story made a little bit longer. Yeah, and I can certainly endorse what I you know. I've been to your uh, week long training, and and um, can certainly endorse that I have brought a lot of the ideas and tools back into my Cutco organization, and it's been transformational. It's been it's been really fantastic. I appreciate all of what you've brought. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how. Uh, Fly is transforming the way leadership is taught and is executed now. What are some of the methodologies and what are some of the key concepts? Yeah. Well, I really like to think we just got out of our, as I said, our twice a year, one week event. And you know, one of the things people talked about a lot at that event is that this is a really interesting time in our history. And it's an interesting time in particular if somebody leads an organization or a community of different types. And sometimes people look at what we're doing and they, they, in my belief, incorrectly say that we're starting something or we're starting a movement. We're not starting anything. We're joining or maybe accelerating a movement that was going to be born without us. There's just a convergence right now of changes in the world that are really causing us all to ask, why are we going to work? And how are we really tapping into the hearts and minds of those we work with? Because we've never been before in the history of humanity at a place in a time where the world actually needs, it demands that we figure out how to solve some of the biggest, most complex problems. And simultaneously, what we're seeing is that the way that we are leading people in communities and in organizations needs to change so that we can more naturally, more effectively on a bigger scale and much faster actually solve these big opportunities. So there's a real convergence that has come together and we're just playing a role in that. And, you know, in a nutshell, what we really do with our work is we're teaching leaders how to design and facilitate conversations that bring out the strengths, not only individually, but also collectively, and to do it really quickly at speeds that many would think are unimaginable. And to do that in the name of sometimes it's how do we accelerate the learning in this organization? Or how do we enable this team that maybe doesn't trust each other? Even worse, there's toxicity in how they're relating. How do we not just turn that around, but actually create a shared vision? Or how do we get this group to create a shared strategy together to capture their biggest opportunities? So 
I mean, those are the areas and the ways that we're applying this work. And the, the biggest surprise of it all is we didn't realize that we would be doing this work at a time and in a place and in a way that would be so magnetically attractive. And to get phone calls just in the last 12 months from Facebook, as an example, to be brought in when they had a huge opportunity for us to help solve. And they had in the room some of the smartest scientists from 10 different countries around the world. They had their best programmers and and a group of people that maybe hadn't worked together. Maybe some of them didn't trust each other. And in less than 48 hours, were responsible for facilitating conversations where they not only come up with shared values for how they're going to work together, but they create a shared set of visions. And just like you and I acting out a push period, guess what we have companies doing? They act out their future. They they embody through prototyping and improvisational acting uh, and play. They actually live the future in the present. It's the most uh, effective, inexpensive way to test a strategy is just to live it out and then evaluate it together and then come up with action plans. Uh, we got a call from BMW last year to help their autonomous driving division. And I've never been more intimidated or than the plane flight out to Munich. To know that I would be in a room with the smartest engineers in the world as they are really shaping not just the future of the number one premium automobile, but literally all of transportation. Because in their role, that's what they're figuring out. And to get to be with them and see that they brought us in because they believe in the power of the questions that we ask. Because they believe that when we ask a question, it changes our future before the answer arrives. And so they had actually heard us on a podcast just like this. They heard me talking about this and they said, we need to change the questions that we are asking ourselves so that we can get more connected to the purpose of our work so that we can figure out what our strengths are so that we can create shared visions and opportunities and execute on all that in the face of dramatic complexity. So you'd ask, you know, where are some of the places that we're getting to go and bring this work in? It's environment after environment after environment, just like these where there's a lot at stake. And I love being the dumbest guy in the room because I just get to watch the magic happen. I bring the questions, I move them in and out of the conversations, but I get to see the good in people always comes out. The good in human beings always arises, even when there's a lot of tension, even when everything is on the line. And that's one of the cool things to get to see. Wow. I'm wondering, John, how can an individual listening to this uh, today, how can they apply some of what you just shared uh, in their own life and in achieving their own goals and establishing their own visions? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things right away. One of them is, and we've talked about this maybe indirectly, but to, to be more direct about it, I think, first of all, being willing to embody curiosity because the work that we're doing, what we're really doing is we're enabling curiosity at scale and at speed right? When you present a question to 200 people, they are by default having to get curious very quickly. But as an individual, I learned this 20 years ago with you, that along with that desire and that drive to perform and to succeed, I have to have an equal balance of curiosity and humility and desire to learn and to, and to wonder, how does the world work? And what's motivating me right now? And are they the kind of motivations that I want to have motivating me? And why am I doing what I'm doing? And you know, how can I find joy in what I'm doing? What kind of future would I love to see happen a year from now? And how do I want to go to work every day? Who do I want to be? And what would it actually look like to live out these values? So these types of questions unlock the kinds of 
discoveries that even as an individual are what some would consider to be the most important questions and internal conversations to have. But it all starts, in my opinion, Dan, with the kind of authentic curiosity that truly comes from a place of humility, where we deeply are interested, not just in asking the best question, but in even listening to what emerges within ourselves, right? What answers come up when I ask these deep questions? Am I willing to stop even just for a second and to pause? You know, when you push pause on a machine, it stops working. You push pause on a person and it starts working. And when I pause, I like to ask deep questions. I like to listen to the answers and then ask, what do I want to do about that now? How do I want to take action differently? What do I want to start doing or stop doing? based on being willing to stop and reflect. I think those are lessons from our work that we do on a large scale that all of us individually can play with every day. You just rattled off about six or eight questions that I think everyone listening could spend some time considering. And, and if you're listening here, you know, back this up about two minutes and re-listen to some of those questions that John just went through because it's a great opportunity to reflect. I know from listening a lot to Jim Rohn, he talks about the importance of reflection. Mm. Um, he talks about, you know, at the end of the day, reflect on your day briefly, think about tomorrow. At the end of a week, reflect on your week, for, you know, for a little while and think about the next week. At the end of a year, take a day to spend reflecting on your year and considering, you know, what are the lessons and things you want to invest into the future. And, and, um, and then, of course, uh, you know, our good friend Hal Elrod talks about visualization. Uh, and the importance of visualization and, and affirmations in, in the miracle morning where, mm-hmm. you know, you're considering the future and thinking about what are you building towards in your life? Uh, what do you want to attract in your life? And, and I think it's important for everyone to take some time to just be considering those things and asking themselves the right questions. And that comes from that genuine curiosity that you shared. You know, you and I both have little kids and Little kids ask so many questions and then there's another one and another one and another one and a follow-up to that and a follow-up to that. And, and that's virtuous. Yeah. Right. That's not, (laughs) yeah, it's not annoying. It's virtuous. And it's something that I think we can all adopt as well. John, what are you most excited about as you look ahead into the next uh, five to 10 years in your business or in your personal life? Yeah. Thanks for asking. You know, the first thing that comes to mind, and it's the thing that gives me the most energy right now in my life, is my family. Uh, my oldest son, Ace, he's nine. He, we just had our opening game of his baseball season last night, and I'm one of the coaches. And just getting to be there during these years where he is growing up and learning about life and learning about failure and learning about being a friend and it's just so enjoyable. My daughter, Sierra, uh, she'll be eight next month. And she's like the, she's the gift of all gifts in my life. She's the greatest gift. And she is a miniature version of my wife. And Sierra, all credit goes to Mara, but she somehow has this perspective on the world where no matter what happens, she just sees what's going to be okay. She sees the good. And, uh, and I learned so much just seeing how she handles struggle. It's amazing. And then our youngest Kaizen, he's, uh, he just turned five and he's just a bundle of joy. And he's also a great reminder. I mean, being very open here, not that I haven't been, but I was really happy when we had two kids, right? Which is another way of saying a lot of other things about having a third. 
<laughs> and uh, actually, truth is, I was great when we had one kid. Two was great. And, and when Kai came along, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, the thing that I wasn't really sure if I was interested in, of course, the, you know, the conversations like this, there is no perfect way for anything to happen in life. But it was funny because he came along and uh, he has been the, the greatest source of joy in my life, just being reconnected to someone in the last five years. So it's been awesome having these kids and my wife in my life. And when you ask me what I'm excited about, it's just, it's growing with them. That's the thing I'm most excited about. I could talk about my work and how it excites me. And I think I've already talked a lot about it. I, if you just think about some of the things I shared, it's, uh, we have some opportunities that have been presented to us to bring our work into places where the world needs it the most. I'll share one story with you to conclude that. And that is, we're in discussions with uh, Dr. Dan Reidenberg right now, who is uh, the head of save.org. And Dan was actually at the event we led with Facebook. He was one of those behavioral scientists in the room. And he's considered to be one of, if I don't know, he might be the top most respected person in the area of suicide prevention in the world. And when I met Dan at Facebook, he had handed me an article. And it was an article that he had just written for his industry, for the whole mental health space. And the article essentially uh, was him calling out all of his colleagues saying, we need to do better. And this is an area in our world today where there's an opportunity, an opportunity to help to create healing. And uh, we're really fortunate that we're in the discussion phase and the design phase of how we can help Dan and his peers to bring together the top two to 300 mental health professionals in the world. It's looking like it'll be sometime next year. And uh, in helping them with our methodology to bring together their strengths, to reimagine how they are going to solve what some would consider to be one of the biggest challenges and opportunities of our time. So when we get invited into that kind of situation, it reminds me that what I'm doing is no longer a fire drill. It's not an exercise that, uh, that it's all real. And that's very humbling. And that drives me to want to keep learning, to keep getting better, and just to be a good person as I do it all. So those are some of the things that get me excited about the future. Wow. That's great, John. How can people find you if they want to follow you, your training? How can our, this audience that's listening uh, stay in touch with you. Yeah, I'm a little old school that I don't have. I don't have some really simple like you know text this number or go to this website. Friend me on Facebook. Actually, if someone's really curious about our work, I'll give you an email address. You can send an email to hello at lead to flourish. The word lead, the number two, the word flourish dot com. And uh, actually, if you send us an email, we've got a whole bunch of free resources. We'll send you. Just send them to you. No questions asked or no catch if you're curious about this conversation. So happy to be connected. All right. It's the Flourishing Leadership Institute, leadtoflourish.com. Is that the site? Yeah, that's right. As well, L-E-A-D, number two, Flourish, F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H. That'll also be in some show notes that we will post as well. John, I just want to say you are an incredible change maker in the world. I admire you very much. I feel like our relationship has come full circle and that, uh, you know, I was the mentor 20 years ago. And nowadays I can honestly say that I'm learning as much from you as I've ever given you and learning as much from you as I am from anyone else in my life. And um, I think that's a, a really cool thing 
to be able to say, I appreciate all the great insights that you've offered here today. As I said at the outset, I know your time is incredibly valuable. Incredibly, you're incredibly pressed for time and stretched and with all of what you're doing with your work and with uh, your three kids and, and family. And, and uh, just really want to appreciate you for being here and, and offering some great insights, John. Thanks very much. May I reciprocate before you unrecord? <laughs> before you push stop? I want to say, and I know I've made this clear in different terms, but we've been very, very fortunate in our work and I've been fortunate in my life. And none of this would be possible if it wasn't for the gift of the opportunity to sell Cutco. And, and when I think about the gift that was given to me, there's a lot of people behind that gift. Only in New York, a few hours from here, the incredible people in that factory that put their heart and their soul into their hands as they have been since 1949, I guess, up through the folks that work in the headquarters for Vector and the management team and all, all of those of you who have ever given an opportunity to anybody to sell knives. I love uh, the opportunity to thank you. And Dan, you represent all of those managers who've given that opportunity because I, we never know when we give that opportunity to a young person what kind of effect that's going to have on the world. So thank you, Dan, to you and everybody that you stand for. This organization is one of a kind. It's incredible. Great, John. Thanks. I appreciate it. Take care. See you, buddy. All right. You can see why I was so excited to be able to have John Berghoff on. Just uh, an incredible leader change maker who's doing amazing things in the world and uh, is a has become super wise and insightful. What if he's right? What if it's true? That's a good question to ponder when you think about ideas that come your way. What if it's true? And stew around on it a little bit. I love where Jim Rohn says, you know, argue later with the things he's sharing. In other words, as you're listening and learning, you know, taking notes and absorbing stuff, don't argue stuff in your mind as you're hearing it. Take it in, take the notes, and then later, you look back at your notes, you consider what was most relevant, what was most important that was shared. John talked about the importance of a leader having the right questions and the importance of engagement in your organization. I want to throw out a book recommendation if you're a, a young leader uh, or a leader of any sort. Uh, the book is Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, Ubuntu. It's got some great stuff about leadership and engagement and guiding principles and all kinds of other good stuff in there. I want to reiterate the importance of weekly influence and making sure that you're engaged in personal development on a regular basis. But also, if you're a leader of any sort, that you're providing resources to your people that help them grow personally, not just in their work, but in their life and why that's so critical. And then uh, for those of you that are in Cutco, just want to remind you how lucky you are to be in a place that puts people first, the knives second, and that enables you to be yourself and still fit in. I thought John put that very eloquently. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Hope you guys got some great material from it. If you like this episode, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, write a review. And check out some of the upcoming episodes that we have with some other amazing leaders, both inside and outside of the Cutco Vector Marketing business. Thanks, everyone. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.